Hi, this is Chris McGregor. The work of Discerning Hearts really could not continue without your prayers and support. Between now and December 31st, please consider making a year-end tax-deductible gift to Discerning Hearts. We are a 501c3 not-for-profit organization. Your donation is fully tax-deductible to the extent permitted by law. Click the Donate button on DiscerningHearts.com or inside the Discerning Hearts free app. Your generous support will allow us to continue producing the type of spiritual formation programming you have come to expect from us. Please prayerfully consider supporting our mission, which is dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. Thank you, and God bless from all of us at Discerning Hearts. Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, Sharon embarks on a study of the Gospel of Luke. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Welcome back. We're going to go to an overview. We start chapter one next week, but let's just do a little overview about what we're going to be learning this year. Luke, the evangelist. How many have been in the papal basilica of St. Peter? St. Peter's in the Vatican. A lot of you have. So you know that when you walk in, it's just breathtaking. The first time you walk in and, and the transcendent beauty just lifts you to God. Some people have a conversion on the spot or a metanoia on the spot. But the focal point of the church is the Holy Spirit, this leaded glass window where you walk in and that's right where your eye goes. The Holy Spirit, this huge window, it is right above the chair of St. Peter. Right under the Holy Spirit is the chair of St. Peter. And what is lifting him up but four doctors of the church? Two are from the east, two are from the west. So what supports the chair of St. Peter are the the doctrine of the church that use the word of God and the Holy Spirit and the seed, the, the, the seed of Peter. St. Ambrose from the West, Augustine from the West, Athanasius from the East, and John Chrysostom from the East. There are 36 doctors of the church, and there are those four that are holding up the chair of St. Peter. They're carved in wood. They're beautiful. Uh, are there any women doctors, ladies? Are there any women doctors of the church? Yeah. Oh, yes, there are four of us. Therese of Avila, Catherine of Siena, Therese of Lisieux, the little flower, and Hildegard van Bignen. Now, the, the ones in black, those were women at times of reform in the church. Great reformers. Women were needed. And so the chair of Peter, supported by four doctors of the church, but I'm going to argue for even an earlier doctor of the church, and his name is St. Luke. By trade, we know he was a physician, So Dr. Luke, the physician, is who we're going to be studying with this year. Now Eusebius of Caesarea, he was born in 260 AD, he said this about Luke. He's a historian, a church historian. He described Luke the physician like this. Luke, who was by race an Antiochian and a physician by profession. Now Antiochian Greek Christians today are an Arabic-speaking ethno-religious Eastern Christian group from the Levant region. And they are either members of the Greek Orthodox Church of Antioch, of which I believe we have two Seeking Truth members, or the Melkite Greek Catholic Church. 
And they have ancient roots in Levant, more specifically in the territories of western Syria, northern and central Lebanon, and the southern Turkish province of Hattay, which include the cities of Anteka, and which is ancient Antioch, one of the holiest cities and most notable cities of early Christianity. Antioch on the Orontes River. It's the ancient Greek Syrian Antioch, it's called. It's an ancient Greek city, and it's where Luke was from. And it's near or right at the modern city in Turkey today called Antakya. It's a very nice big city, and it was called Antioch for centuries. One of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. It was influential, very influential in early Christianity, a population of 250,000 at the time. And it was a chief center of the early Christian church during Roman times. And it had a large population of Jews, and that attracted the earliest missionaries because the Old Testament was the Jews, and they were waiting for a Messiah. And so when after Pentecost, when many of the Jews became Christians, they're the evangelizers going out to Jewish communities saying, we found him, we found him, we found the Messiah. St. Peter was here in Antioch, and he evangelized there according to the tradition upon which the Antiochian patriarch still rests the claim for the primacy of Peter, as well as they claim Barnabas and Paul were there. Paul was certainly there during his first missionary trip. This is the church of St. Peter. It's the first church in Christianity. And Peter preached there. It was a cave in the side of a hill, and they put a facade over it. And this was the first Christian church, and it's called St. Peter's. It's also the place where Christians first were called Christians. They were named Christians here. Converts started being called Christians. They were called the way before in the book of Acts. It's not to be confused with another Antioch in Pisidia. There are a lot of monasteries in this region, and you see the ancient roads. Uh, all roads lead to Rome because it, it's part of the Roman Empire. A little map to get your bearings. You see... Antioch, Ephesus, where John became bishop and took Mary to retire in Ephesus. You see Athens, Greece. You see Philippi, Rome, Corinth, where Paul preached to the Corinthians, Caesarea, Maritima, and Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, where the Jewish temple was until 70 AD. Eusebius said that Luke was a longtime companion of St. Paul and that he had careful conversation with other apostles as well. And in two books that he left us, examples of medicine for souls that he had gained for them. The two books that he left us that are medicine for our souls are the book of Luke that we're studying this year and the book of Acts. He wrote both of those. He was a physician. He was very detail-oriented and a wonderful historian. He wrote 27% of the New Testament, Luke did, more than anyone else. The second, who comes in second? St. Paul. Yeah, just a few words less, and depending if you count Hebrews or not as Paul's, which I personally do, but uh, e either way, Luke wins by a few words. Now, Dr. Luke gave a medicine for souls when he wrote this good news. It was the gospel according to St. Luke, the words of Jesus Christ, and it was called in Greece, where he's from, euangelion, which is the Greek word that means good news. And this was very good news, not yes. fake news, <laughs> but good news, very good news. And so it says in Luke 3, so with many other exhortations, John the Baptist preached the good news, the euangelion, to all the people. You know in Daniel, you who have been studying with us for nine years, I go back to Daniel 2 a lot because Daniel interpreted a dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. And he told of the kingdoms that were going to come 
before the final kingdom of Jesus Christ, the stone made by not human hands. But we're in the time of Greece. The world had been Hellenized by the Greeks under Alexander the Great, and then it had been conquered by Rome. And the Roman Empire was in full force at the time of Luke. But he's Greek, so he's a Hellenized man from Antioch in the Roman Empire. In contemporary Greek, Galleon meant a weighty, authoritative, royal, official message. Luke knew Koinine Greek. He spoke, he wrote eloquently, he's very well educated. In Rome, Rome had taken over now, and the imperial cult was the fastest growing religion in the world, and that was the emperors saying that they were deities, that they were gods. And so Rome also used the Galleon, the good news, and they put a religious meaning to it, saying the announcement or the appearance or the ascension to the throne of the ruler. Who would be the next emperor? Who would be the next god? And so the gospel, according to St. Luke, had a different galleon. It announced different good news. The announcement of an appearance or accession to the throne of the ruler, Luke said that this was the new king, the king of kings, the lord of lords. This one was going to ascend to the throne. <laughs> this little homeless baby who has nowhere to lay his head, who's running for his life to Egypt, fleeing, who has no... It's just quite a message that Luke's going to tell us. The new ruler of the Roman Empire, the king of kings and lord of lords, is lying wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger outside of Bethlehem, the house of bread. Yeah, he's bread, all right. Bread for the world. And he's the prince of peace. And peace was very important in the Roman Empire. You had to keep Pax Romana. You had to keep peace. And there's claims that this new little infant is the prince of peace. Isaiah told it, remember? So Dr. Luke will bring the medicine needed for the world. And the medicine the world needed was Jesus Christ. And it's good news. And it's still, Jesus Christ is still the medicine that the world needs today. And Dr. Physician Luke is going to bring the galleon. We need medicine for our souls because we're redeemed, but we're wounded. We're the wounded body of Christ. And we got wounded as humanity immediately following the fall. Medicine was needed for fallen, disordered, damaged, sick souls. Originally, they were perfectly ordered. They were luminous with God's glory, but now they're fallen, disordered. Their intellect has been darkened. Their souls have been tarnished, and their wills have been weakened and sick. None of that before the fall. All after the fall, the human condition. So Jesus Christ himself becomes the new Adam, and he's going to bring, another title of his is Divine Physician, and he's going to bring medicine for the world. And what's the medicine? What's the medicine that he's going to provide? The leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. It's medicine. He's going to bring new eternal medicine from the new tree of life in the Garden of Eden. His cross is the new tree of life, and he is eternal fruit. He's always in season. He's blooming 12 months out of the year, Revelation says. It's perpetual food for the life of the world, and it's his own body, and it's the medicine we need for healing. So when you go up for communion at Mass, you're going up for healing. He himself is the medicine. He's bread, blessed, broken, and shared. For the life of the world, for all time, it'll never, ever, ever run out. You think the feeding of the 5,000 was a big deal out of five little barley loaves? This bread is never, ever, ever going to run out. Joseph in the Old Testament fed the world, the bread. This bread is bread from heaven. It's the medicine of immortality. If you eat this bread, you will never die. That's a pretty good medicine guarantee. You know, read your boxes of medicine. Read the insert. 
Do they say if you take this medicine, you will never, ever die? Jesus medicine, he says, I'm the bread of life, which came down from heaven. And if anyone eats this bread, he will live how long? Forever. The bread I give for the life of the world is my very flesh. In the Hebrew, it's trogos. It's like eat it, gnaw it, chew it, eat my flesh. Literally, eat my flesh. There is no surer pledge or dearer sign of the great hope in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells than the Eucharist. Every time the mystery is celebrated, and that's the mystery of the Mass, the work of our redemption is carried on and we break the one bread that provides the medicine of immortality, the antidote for death, and the food that makes us live forever in Jesus Christ. That's pretty good medicine. It's called Holy Communion. And if you want to be in Holy Communion with Jesus Christ, you take his body into your body. And after you have communion, you get in your tent, you put your prayer shawl over your head, and you get in your tent, and you are in communion with him, and he is healing you. If you open yourself up to his healing grace, he wants to heal you. It's why he came, to heal damaged souls from the fall of mankind. And all of us have it. We all were born with a fallen human nature, redeemed in baptism, but we still need healing because we still fall. In the dictionary, communion is the sharing or exchange of intimate thoughts and feelings, especially when the exchange is on a spiritual level. That's a secular dictionary. But intimacy, sharing intimacy with Jesus because you take him into your body and you share your deepest feelings with him. That's what the time is for after communion to be in holy communion with communion himself. So Christ joined our humanity. God of all the universe puts himself into this tiny body of a baby that, that needs diapers and needs Mary to nurse him every two hours. I mean, he totally depends on us to help him live, to help him make it to Calvary. He depends on humanity. He joins us in our human condition. God of the universe would put himself in a baby and he goes even lower than that now to put himself in bread. Bread's even worse than a baby. He introduces the world to his kingdom. He says, I have a kingdom. I'm bringing a kingdom. I'm introducing a kingdom. The kingdom of God is here. <laughs> and they're like, what? You know, what, what is your kingdom? It's very nebulous in the scriptures, in the synoptic gospels. The kingdom he's bringing. What is the kingdom? Where's your crown? Where's your suit of armor? Where are you gonna, where's your horses? Where are, where are you? And he proclaims that there is a way back. You've fallen from grace, you've fallen from my Father, but I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. There's no death in me. I'll conquer death for you so that you don't have to worry about that anymore. And I'll take you back to my Father. Follow me. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. So you've got to pick up your cross and follow me. And I'll show you the way back to my divine Father. I'll give you that paradise again. I'll take you there to the promised land. Journey with me, come with me, let's go, follow me. And only Luke puts it this way. He says, deny yourself and take up your cross daily. Luke is the only one that puts the word daily in there. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. Every single day you have to choose to love me. It's not going to be easy. He's going to enter into our human suffering. That's what he's going to enter into. We suffer now after the fall. It's disordered. We have wounds. We have sickness. We have death. We have emotional wounds that like, we don't want anyone to know about. We want to live in secrecy. And he wants to heal all that. He wants to join our human suffering, and he wants to open the door so we can partake again with the divine nature of the Trinity. 
He wants to get us back into God's image and God's likeness. He wants to heal all that. Because in original glory, humanity was luminous with the glory of God. We were shining so brightly. We, were so, we had no original sin. We were full of the light of God. And we lost all that. And he wants to help us get back to partake in that divine nature again. Peter tells us that. We'll return to Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study with Sharon Doran in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, Tune in, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study with Sharon Doran. So after the fall, our intellect gets darkened. Yes, we were in God's image and likeness, but not after the fall we weren't. We fell from that. We chose differently. All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are in this human condition now. Our intellect is darkened, our image is tarnished, and our will is weakened. We live by the flesh now, more than by the Spirit. We're not quite as luminous as we were in the Garden of Eden. But Jesus comes down to earth, joins our humanity, joins this nature of ours, and wants to take us back to the divine nature of the Trinity, and he wants to take us right into the heartbeat of love itself. And you get a taste of that on earth. You get a taste of that on earth when you go to Mass. He wants to take you into that communion with the Trinity right then and there when he feeds you himself, the medicine of immortality. 
So for the rest of eternity, he promises to feed us himself. Time and time and time and time and time and time again. And what's really amazing is that he was the victim and he was the priest. He's the victim, the Lamb of God who was slain. He's also the priest that offers a sacrifice back to the Father. And it's a perfect sacrifice because he's obedient in every single thing he does. He never disappoints his Father, ever. He never sins. He always does the will of the Father. He's obedient every step along the way. So it's a perfect sacrifice of love back to the Father. And the Father is perfectly willing to accept it because it's the perfect high priest, sinless high priest, offering the perfect sacrifice back to the Father. He's the perfect sacrifice, and he is the final high priest that offers the perfect sacrifice, and the Father accepts it with love, with joy, with grace. And he wants to get us back near to the heart of God. And it starts here on earth. We don't have to wait till heaven to experience this. We get a partial foretaste now. But then one day, if we follow him, if we pick up our cross daily and do what he says, we will be back into the heart of God. That's where we'll live forever. And there will be no death and there will be no pain and there will be no tears. So salvation comes through Jesus Christ. He's the one who did it. He won our salvation for us every step of the way. But... God trusts us to cooperate with this plan and to play some part in this plan of salvation. That's how much God trusts us. He trusts Mary to feed him every two hours or he wouldn't have never even made it to the cross. He trusts you with something, part of his plan. He's entrusted you with a little piece of this plan. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that exciting? You are Christ now. You've been baptized into his death. You've been risen up out of the water of baptism. You're joining him in resurrection when you die. Your whole body's going to... You've joined in this plan of salvation. You are a cooperator with Christ. That's super exciting. Paul put it this way, I rejoice in my sufferings. See, that's where we meet him, in the suffering. That's why he joined the human condition, to join in our suffering. Do not waste your suffering because it's so powerful. It can be an emotional suffering. You're going through a divorce. Don't waste an ounce of that emotional suffering you're going through. You're going through cancer. Don't waste an ounce of that emotional suffering you're going through. Because it's powerful. That's where Jesus meets us in humanity, in that suffering. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, people, because in my flesh I complete what's lacking in Christ's suffering for the sake of his body, the church. We can join in that suffering too. People meet Christ in suffering. You want to bring lasagna to someone who's suffering because you want to join in their suffering. There's just something about the human condition that we want to join in someone's suffering because that's where Christ is. That's where he joined us. And we, with Christ in us, want to join back into that. So we go rake their lawn because they're in the hospital. Or we go do something. <laughs> Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present yourselves, your own bodies, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do not conform to this world. Detach from it. Detach from this world. Attach to him. Be in communion with him. Let the world go. Is it going to be easy? I beg your pardon. <laughs> I never promised you a rose garden. My dad used to like that song. It was Lynn Anderson. She was a country singer. It's not going to be easy. He didn't promise it would be easy. It's not going to be a rose garden. He says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. 
Because many, many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. It's a narrow way. It's an uphill climb. It's a heavy cross. When you carry that cross, it's heavy. Some people in here are carrying heavy crosses right now, some heavier than others. I can't even look at your faces because I'll start crying because I know some of the crosses you're carrying because I know you. And there's always Simon of Cyrene's to help carry that cross. But still, in the dark of the night, you're the one carrying it. Some of the saints had bruised shoulders because they had that wound of carrying the cross. I think Padre Pio might have had it. I have to look up which saints had it. It's a very private wound. They didn't tell. It doesn't bleed or anything, but it's just this aching from, from carrying the cross. Christ laid down his human life for his bride, the church. He laid down his life, every ounce of life he laid down for this bride. He loved the church. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her with washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what he did for us. We are his church, corporately, his bride. He washed us clean on the cross. No wrinkle, no spot, no blemish, a stain-free bride. You remember the Israelites. They had an individual, like they could go under their prayer shawls and have individual worship, and they also had corporate worship as a nation, the temple, and what God asked them to do. Same with the bride of Christ, the church. You are an individual bride of Christ, but you are also a corporate, the bride of Christ. It's like an office that he won for us. The office of the bride is holy, stainless, Pure, because Jesus cleansed her before the wedding. The consummation was on the cross, and he cleansed the bride before the wedding. So the church is holy and pure, and we think right now, with everything going on, we don't feel that holy. When I said that at Mass, the one holy church, I was like, hmm. But while the office of the bride is holy, it's made up of individual sinners, each of us in the pew. But the marks of the Catholic Church are that she is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. She's holy, always, because he washed her clean. Christ died to sanctify her. She was pulled from his side. He's the new Adam. He falls asleep on the cross, and the Father pulls the church out of his side. And he washes her clean with the water that gushes forth, and he feeds her with the blood, the Eucharist, and the Spirit is there to testify because the Lord, in John's gospel, he gives over his spirit. There has to be three to testify in the Jewish faith. The water, the blood, and the spirit. And John tells us that when he says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with water and the blood and the spirit is the witness, because the spirit is truth. There are three witnesses, the spirit, the water, the blood, and they all agree. That bride has been washed clean. When an individual member sins, the member breaks the bond with God and with the bride, both. We break the bond with God, we break the bond with the church when we are in sin. So this Greek doctor, Luke, is going to help give us some medicine for our souls this year, and we need it. Now, Pope Francis was dispensing medicine in 2003. I don't know if you remember this, but I thought it was kind of cute because he was joking around that he was a physician like Luke, and he was promoting medicine boxes that he had thousands of these made, and he was promoting prayer as the medicine for the heart. 
And he called it misericordinia, which means, uh, it, he said, this is a spiritual, a box of spiritual medicine. And he was overlooking after the Angelus, and he told the people all about it. He's, what was in the box? A rosary? A divine mercy holy card? So you could pray the chaplet, and then a medicinal-style instruction sheet about how to say the rosary and how to pray the divine mercy chaplet. <laughs> and he had thousands of them made, and he had volunteers handing out these boxes of medicine for all the people that were in attendance that day. He said, this is a spiritual aid for our soul and for spreading love. Spiritual medicine, he said, that is very, very good for your heart. And I looked it up, and you can still buy these boxes of medicine on Amazon. You can get anything on Amazon. 12.97 euros. And it, it, uh, the title means a merciful heart or a heart of compassion. If you want a heart of compassion, say the rosary and do your divine mercy chaplet. It was an analogy he was having fun with. But we all know that Jesus Christ is the real healer. He is the divine physician. And we'll see right away in Luke chapter 4 where he's going to heal a man with an unclean spirit in Capernaum right off the bat. We know that he gave healing sacraments to the church because he's a healer and he wants his bride to be whole, healthy, and beautiful, and radiant, and blemish-free. So he gave us sacraments. And I absolutely love this idea, and I made it up because I'm an old science teacher. I have not seen this anywhere, but when I saw that pure white light enters the trinity of glass, it's refracted, and Jesus is pure white light. He said he was the light who has come into the world. He's true light from true light. So he comes in, and he's refracted into seven beautiful sacraments. He is in all of them, in each and every one of them. There's seven. It's a perfect covenantal number. It's baptism, reconciliation, Eucharist, confirmation, holy orders, matrimony, and the anointing of the sick. Of those seven, two are for healing, designated for healing specifically. The anointing of the sick, a healing sacrament, the chrism is given to anyone in need of healing. I've had that sacrament probably four times in my life, and it is a very beautiful healing sacrament. Along with it, if you're near death, you can get viaticum, which is your final communion. It's, it's that medicine of immortality that's food for the journey home. It's called viaticum. It says in the Catechism that the Eucharist is a sacrament of initiation, but it occupies a very unique place as the sacrament of sacraments. It's the granddaddy of them all. It's the source and summit of our faith. The sacrament of sacraments, all the other sacraments are ordered to the Eucharist as to their end. Because the Eucharist is Jesus Christ himself. So everything's ordered to that. Viaticum is food for the journey home. So uh, it says that communion in the body and blood of Christ, received at the moment of passing over to the Father, has a particular significance and importance. This is viaticum. It is the seed of eternal life and the power of the resurrection, according to the words of our Lord. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You just heard part one of an overview of the Gospel of Luke on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.